To be in the Christmas spirit, you've heard me say many times, is to walk in a spirit of worship. There's no greater occupation in life than worship. It's the state of being consumed with the glorious majesty of God. Worship isn't something that happens to you. It emanates from you. It is active. It is demonstrative. It is something that will be filled with sights, things you can see. It'll be filled with sounds, things that you hear. It'll be filled with songs, with speech, with sacrifices, and even scents, S-C-E-N-T-S. In the Old Testament, you could smell worship. You really could in the temple as the incense was burning, as the sacrifices were being offered. In other words, there isn't any such thing as passive Worship. Those are mutually exclusive concepts. They're contradictory. Worship is something I give, something I do, something I offer. And so today we consider the third message in this month's month's Christmas series that I've titled Meditations on the Incarnation. And your bulletin is incorrect. I don't know how I let that slip past me. That was last week's title that you have. Today is Meditations on the Incarnation, the third in this series. This one titled Concerning Sincere Praise. Concerning Sincere Praise. And I would argue that the vast majority of what you heard said, sung, and alluded to in these days in our culture is anything but sincere praise. Oh, there may be lip service given to the Lord Jesus and who he is. And folks might say, uh, have a joyous Christmas or Merry Christmas or something along that line. But based upon what I see in our culture, uh, the last thing folks as a whole are interested in and having and being characterized by And that is sincere praise. But a true blood-bought believer ought not have to be pistol-whipped into offering sincere praise. Amen? It ought to flow from the depth of our hearts. That that well, that wellspring that is bubbling up and gushing out because of all that we have received from him. And more importantly, because of who he is. And so I want to offer a lengthy introduction and then a brief message. And we're going to get into the word of God in the book of Luke, but not for a moment. I want to offer first as a primary point, some instructions concerning praising our incarnated Lord, some instructions. And I don't mean to make that sound condescending, but really some, some pointers, some uh, tidbits, if you will, some general thoughts about that. You see, worship is nearly impossible to define. I have tried to define it, to really wrap my arms around it. And it's too vast, the depth, the breadth, the height, the width. It's too much. The dimensions are really immeasurable. So it really is difficult to define. It's even somewhat difficult to describe. But basically, worship means to attribute worth. Um, The reason that it's difficult to adequately even describe is because when it comes to worship, the one who is receiving worship is infinite. And the the ones who are giving worship are finite. And for the finite to fully comprehend the infinite, of course, is a logical impossibility. And so we try to understand it. We try to describe it. We seek to get a handle on it. But I guess there's always more to understand. A good many believers, and maybe we can begin here with a word of instruction. A good many believers, and there are theologians who hold 
that the primary focus of God in the human realm, uh, the, the primary uh, motivating thrust of God is the salvation of the lost. I disagree. That's not the primary uh, heartbeat of God, the salvation lost. Oh, yes, it certainly is part of that. But I believe that the word of God teaches that the most preeminent issue in all of existence is that God seeks glory. He deserves glory. He delights in glory. Certainly salvation is one of the ways that God is glorified. When a lost, when a dead, when a depraved sinner is all of a sudden woken up in his depravity and he is drawn irresistibly to the grace of God and that life is surrendered and it's transformed and made new and goes on living in holiness and fruitfulness. Of course, God is glorified. But that is the fruit that we see. The root of the issue is that God was receiving glory long before the first man ever experienced redemption. His plan of salvation was not ultimately or primarily for our good. Although it is for our good, it's not primarily for our good. It's primarily for his glory. Listen to the words of Ephesians 1 verses 5 and 6 and verse 12. It says, in love... He predestined us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why? Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. It's so that his glory would be praised. His graciousness, that is who he is, would be adored because of the great things that he has done. That's the primary emphasis in Revelation 4.11, where it says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and by thy pleasure they are and were created. It's not for our good primarily. It's not about me or about you. That's not what the focus of creation is, and it's certainly not the focus of redemption. It's so that the, all the universe may just be, may, may shrink back and say, God, you are glorious. You are great. It's more than I can fully comprehend. I'll have to actually be in your presence to really fully get a taste of your majesty. That is what the motivating thrust really of the universe is. Minister of Music, Jack Taylor wrote, praise is the most worthwhile endeavor endeavor in heaven and on earth. And you know, the whole book of Psalms, for instance, is the hymn book or it's the worship manual um, for all um, believers of all time. And you'll notice that there's instruction about salvation in the book of Romans and other places. There's instruction about creation in the book of Genesis and and how things are going to end up in the book of Revelation and other places. But the book of Psalms is the primary and almost exclusive worship manual or hymnal in the Bible. And it is two and a half times longer than any other single book in the Bible. Did you pick up on that? Did you get that? The quantity, the volume of text in the sacred word of God is by and large, far and away, much weightier on ascribing worth to God simply because of who he is. Worship involves three primary aspects, if you'll indulge me for a moment in this lengthy introduction. First of all, there's intrinsic motivation. The first point of the shorter catechism that the Puritan parents would teach their children asks the question to the children. Children, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? In other words, what, why do you exist? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to honor God, to glorify him. 
God wants me to desire him. God wants me to delight in him more than in anyone else or anything else. Therefore, worship is a heart issue. It is it is to have intrinsic motivation. Um, there ought not to be some kind of angle that I'm working. If I find that, if I, if I say, well, I'm going to go to a worship service or I'm going to uh, sing and, and praise him and pray or whatever it might be, whatever way worship plays out in your life, if it is for some other motivation other than it's just the gratefulness and the awe and the wonder of God welling up in my soul and flowing over, then something is missing. <clears throat> it's a hard issue. We're to worship in spirit. And truth, John 4, 24. Notice that, that phrase. Jesus said, the Father seeks those to worship him in spirit and truth. There's one preposition there. It's not in spirit or in truth. One at one time and one in the other. It's in spirit and truth. One preposition. Meaning both of those are to be uh, uh, commingled together all the time as we are worshiping him. What does it mean? In spirit means it's not mechanical. It's not a formula. It's not a system. It's not when we just come to here, we close the doors. Okay, it's 1045. Let's start. Okay, we're on. Okay, it's 12 o'clock. We're done worshiping. That would be mechanical. That would not be worshiping in spirit. And then in truth is based upon who he is, his attributes as described in the word of God. And so we are to worship him from a heart motivation. I agree with Joseph Carroll, who wrote the book, How to Worship Jesus Christ. He says, no man will ever experience true worship in a consistent manner unless he sets his will to do so. You see, just like the universe, if we just let things go, we're going to spiral downhill. Things, the, the passion in our heart for God is going to fade away. It's going to, it's going to diminish unless our focus, unless we set, cast our gaze upon him, and do so intentionally, then we are not going to experience true worship in a consistent manner. And that's precisely what Oswald Chambers wrote, uh, the severest discipline. It's a discipline of the Christian life is to learn how, to learn how to, to sit still, to be quiet and behold as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says it's the most severe discipline of the Christian like uh, Robert Coleman writing on worship described it as worship is the adoring response of the creature to the infinite majesty of God. While it presupposes submission to him to worship in the highest sense is not supplication for needs or even thanksgiving for blessings. But why? Because that would be about me. That would make the focus about me. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Of course, we're to do that. But that is not pure worship. Pure worship is the occupation of the soul with God himself. The end of it all is the pure joy of magnifying the one who alone is worthy. Do you ever just sit quietly by yourself and put all the distractions aside and not bring a prayer list and not intercede and not do anything but simply bask in the glory of God and for who he is. God, you are wonderful. You are majestic. You are awe-inspiring. My heart is filled to overflowing. My soul rejoices in who you are and what I understand of you. Intrinsic. Motivation Is it there in your life? Is that who you are really? Truly, is that how, uh, how it is? I want to be like, I want to live in that because I know not just to, because of the glory that it brings in and not just because of the delight that it brings to my soul, but I know that when I am caught up in love with him, I know 
that my service will be pure. My ministry will be uh, fruitful. My witness will be effective. You all follow me? You hear what I'm saying on that? Worship, the intrinsic nature of it, deep from within the soul, ought to be what prompts me, motivates me, and carries me down the road of living for him. Secondly, there needs to be enthusiastic participation in worship. I've said many times, worship is demonstrative. That is, it's participatory. A true worshiper is a seeker of God's heart. That's what Psalm 103 and verse 1, it admonishes God's people to worship him enthusiastically as it says, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. It's almost as if we're um, exhorting ourselves in our own hearts and we're doing that with one another, that we're to participate in this. We're to come together if we're gathered uh, in a corporate sense and lift up his name. John MacArthur writes, worship is an expressed attitude of the heart that is so filled at wonder and thanksgiving with the person and work of God that it is abandoned. That is, it can't do anything else but praise and adore. It's that kind of, and in fact, it does it. It's not that just that it's exhorted to do it. It's not just that it's prompted to. It's not just that it's motivated intrinsically, but in fact, it is played out in the lives of his people. Thirdly, with this general principles of praise, it's to be characterized by majestic adoration. In other words, not just who you worship, but how you worship really does make a difference. The modern day church in America needs a fresh understanding, needs a baptism, if you will, in the attributes of God. Who is this God? Who is this Lord of the universe? Who is this baby? I'm so thankful, aren't you, for a, 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 a worship leader and a music uh, director who knows theology. Amen. I tell you, what a day in which we live um, when the, 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 the theology for worship is being set by, um, by musicians and not theologians. God help us. That's not the case in this church. I'm so thankful for that. Majestic adoration. The modern day church needs to understand God is holy. He's eternal. He is awe inspiring and he's not our good buddy. Ron Owens, Southern Baptist composer, wrote, a factor contributing to the lack of worship is that the holy has become common. We bring God down to our level, have no problem being chummy with him. If we knew him the way he intends there would be much more stooping, a lot less strutting. We need to be less concerned about the what and the how of worship and a whole lot more concerned about the who of worship. The phrase seeker-friendly worship services, <clears throat> although not judging the motive, is at best foolishness. It's an oxymoron. Worship can never be seeker-friendly Worship is for God alone. It's not a bait on a, it's not a lure on a fishing line that you cast out to catch some unsuspecting sinner. That is as far from biblical worship as anything could be. <clears throat> D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, no neophyte when it comes to theology and pastoral ministry, wrote, the most important and highest activity that a company of God's people could ever engage in is to offer Almighty God 
acceptable worship, which is what Psalm 29 and verse 2 says, give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That is with the fragrance of holiness, with the garments of holiness, with a separated life. Let God see a separated life bringing praise to him. Now that is acceptable worship. Not we've a modern day chorus which might have the lyrics of we've sure got a good old daddy upstairs. Great to dig him when we pray. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, the supreme thing is worship. The attitude of worship is the attitude of a subject bent before the king. The fundamental thought is that of prostration, of bowing down. That was all introduction. Now for the message, if you'll turn to the book of Luke. Very briefly, I want us to consider five illustrations about praising our incarnated Lord. Five illustrations from the Word of God, Luke chapter 1, that are specific and that show us a biblical picture of what it means for the people of God to worship. Luke chapter 1, the first thing we see is John and Elizabeth, John the Baptist that is, offered spontaneous praise. Luke 1 verse 39. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste, into a city of Judah, and entered into the house of Zacharias, and greeted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her her womb, that is John the Baptist, in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she spoke out with a loud voice and says, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy greeting sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed. For there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Mary's cousin Elizabeth and her preborn son, John the Baptist, were strangely moved by the presence of God in the person of the Lord Jesus. And he was just conceived of the Holy Spirit in Mary and John, of course, the Baptist was six months along in the womb of Elizabeth. He was radically affected when he first encountered Christ and John offered spontaneous praise by leaping in the womb. Now, what was the ministry of John the Baptist? He was the forerunner. He was the one who was coming ahead, who was saying, prepare the way of the Lord. There's coming one after me. I'm not worthy to to even buckle his shoes. I must decrease. He must increase. This is the very John the Baptist. And while he was in the womb, six months along in the gestation period, he encounters, um, comes into the presence of the living Lord and he jumps. It's almost as if John the Baptist is saying, hey, everyone, pay attention. This is Messiah. He worshiped spontaneously. We see, secondly, Mary in the next section offered praise wholeheartedly. And we're to worship in a spontaneous way, being quick to uh, tell of the greatness of God. We must worship wholeheartedly. And Mary did. Verse 46. And Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my savior, for he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden for behold, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed for he that is mighty hath done to me great things and holy is his name. 
And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her about three months and returned to her own house. Mary had this spirit of worship swelling within her heart, as it will with all believers who are responding to the wonder of God. Do you ever just contemplate the the awesomeness, and as the Puritans would say, the awfulness of God. That is, he, uh, he is uh, my heart is full of awe over him. God is terrible, meaning that I, cannot, uh, I can't wrap my arms around him. He is too vast, and I am um, at wonder because of that. Mary had that type of wholehearted type of a response. Look in verse 46. It says, and Mary said, my soul doth magnify. That word magnify is the word, we get the word mega. And it mean, and it's it, present tense, the usage here, it means that continually he is being made large in my life. Mary is saying in this text, I don't see myself as anything. I'm nothing great. Don't put me up on a pedestal. Don't adore me. Don't idolize me. Don't think that I have anything to do with anything. I am simply a vessel and I'm blown away that God would use me in such a way as this. And folks, young people, God will use you too. She was available. She was wholesome. She was faithful. And God says, I'm going to use her in a marvelous way. And he'll use us in a marvelous way as well as our hearts are wholly given to him. Her praise reflected her heart. And then in chapter two, we see the angels offering praise Corporately, John the, John the Baptist by himself in the womb. Mary was, uh, uh, was musing about this. And then we see corporate worship in chapter 2 of the book of Luke. Luke 2, beginning in verse 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, an angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were very much afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host is almost as if they were saying, we must get in on this. Don't hold us back another moment. Don't put us off in the, in the side chamber. We also want to join you with him, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That is on earth, peace toward men of goodwill really is a good understanding of that. Angels, typically are given to worship. And the Lord Jesus is the focal point. You remember in Isaiah chapter six and verse three in the temple, Isaiah was in the temple and uh, he encountered the, the, uh, the uh, effulgent, the brilliant, the glowing glory of, of God. And the angels cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. With the angels, do you see the glory of God everywhere you look? 
I mean, can't you see the glory of God? Uh, as, as Mark was saying earlier, I see the glory of God um, in the creation of uh, the procreation of a little life. I see the glory of God in changing your life, in changing my life, in creation, and all the, the wonder that, uh, of the things that he has done. The angels proclaim the glory of God. John 12, 41 says that it was Jesus being praised by those angels in the temple in Isaiah 6. Hebrews 1, 6 refers to Christ when it says, let all the angels of God worship him. The angels offering praise in a corporate sense. I don't, I understand it when I was lost coming out to a church service and being indifferent during a time of corporate worship or of corporate prayer or of corporate Bible study. See, all of those are expressions of worship, whether we're singing, whether we're praying, whether we're testifying, whether we're studying, all of that is expressions of worship. But I do not understand. I don't know what it means. I really don't for a professing believer to chronically be indifferent about the issue of worship, that it's incongruous. It can't make sense. There must be something going on if a person is usually aloof when it comes to the things of God. Englishman James Montgomery, back in the early 1800s, was orphaned as a child. Listen to this testimony. Brother Steve and you and the Haiti Home of Hope Committee and you who have been to our orphanage, what God can do in the most desperate situation. He was orphaned as a child when his missionary parents died in the West Indies, serving God with all their hearts. And they both die and they got this little one. As a young man, having grown up in that difficult situation, he wrote editorials for a British newspaper. Early on in the morning on Christmas Day, I'm sorry, Christmas Eve that day in 1618, at age 45, Montgomery was studying this text in verses 13 and 14. He was focusing on, he was pouring over Luke 2, 13 and 14. The heavenly host praising a glory to God in the highest. He was so moved by the imagery of that, what it must have been like, that he wrote a poem. And it was first put to music. Five years later in 1821 and sung on Christmas Day, 1821. Now, 184 years later, it is still a favorite. Angels from the realms of glory. I mean, they're just coming from all over the place. Where are they coming from? Where are they going? There's so many. They're everywhere. That's what the shepherds must have experienced. Angels from the realms of glory who wing your flight or all the earth. You, you are the ones who sang creation story thousands of years ago. You were there and you saw things exploding into existence. You are the very ones who experienced that. Now you're proclaiming Messiah's birth. Oh, come and worship, come and worship, worship him. The newborn king. You see, a huge part of the incarnation concerns sincere praise. My guess is CNN, Fox News won't report that this week. Fourthly, the shepherds offered praise enthusiastically. Verse 15. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven... (laughs) 
Imagine the shape the shepherds must have been in when that happened. <laughs> Glad they're gone. I couldn't take much more. <laughs> the shepherds said one to another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. No praise to the angels. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying, which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things, pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. The shepherds offered praise enthusiastically. I've said it many times, you've heard me say it. Those who know him intimately will worship him enthusiastically. Did you hear that? Those who know him intimately, really know who God is, have really experienced new life, are the ones who will praise him enthusiastically. The shepherds were told about the birth of Christ and their celebration was so enthusiastic that their testimony was heard everywhere. Verse 18, all those who heard it wondered. Verse 20, they returned uh, praising God, telling basically everyone the things that they had seen and heard. Notice how quickly, how enthusiastically the shepherds responded. Look at verse 11, the end of verse 11. It says, um, <clears throat> not the end of verse 11, the end of verse um, 15. In the middle of verse 15, it says, let us what? Now go, right now. We've just experienced this, this, uh, this uh, message. We've just received the message. Let us now go. Look at verse 16. And they came how? How did they come to uh, Bethlehem? What? With, with haste. They got after it. They were making a, they were beating a path to celebrate the living Lord. It says there in verse 17a, and when they had seen it, they made known as, as it were, as soon as the, they, they experienced this, as soon as they had a testimony to share, they were quick to go out and share it. Folks, it was unbridled enthusiasm because they had experienced the living Lord in their own lives. Have you experienced him? Do you really have a relationship with him? And if so, is there something hindering you um, from offering praise, from walking in a spirit of praise? Might it be pride? Might it be uh, something that is distracting you, derailing you? Uh, uh, you're caught up in something else instead of all the while basking in the, the, the warmth of his presence, the glory of, uh, of God as revealed in his word. Fifthly, we see in Matthew chapter 2, a couple of books back, Matthew chapter 2, and we're done. Matthew chapter 2, we see the wise men who offered gifts tangibly. This wasn't just theory for them. This wasn't just something verbal, vocal, visual, audible for them. This was hands-on. And you know the text, Matthew 2 and verse 1. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east, saying, <clears throat> east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests, the scribes, the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, 
And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently, or more precisely, what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Jerusalem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. You see, even a pagan deceiving king knew the issue was worship. The issue was allegiance. When they heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, fell down, worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. The wise men, the magi, dating back to the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar, are those who were schooled, who were very well known to be schooled in astronomy, in world philosophy, in agriculture, in history, in mathematics. And these lofty men, considered the elite of their society, came to where a baby was to present a tangible gift. Why? Because they had a heart change to the degree that verse 10 at the end of it, it's difficult to translate. It's literally they had exceedingly abundant joy in their rejoicing. In other words, their rejoicing was not your normal kind of rejoicing. Their rejoicing was exceedingly exuberant in its particular type. It's almost like a style or a type all its own when they experienced Christ. What did they experience? The giving of gold. Speaking of his deity. Only a king, royalty, was going to receive this. And notice, they didn't gather their offering when they arrived, they brought it with them. Amen. See what I'm saying? I mean, they came prepared. They knew what they were going to be doing. They knew who, who, uh, what they, who they were all about and what this was all about. And they came recognizing his deity. They also brought frankincense, which speaks of the worship. And it's the fragrance for worship. According to Leviticus chapter 2, it talks about burning that during a time of worship. And so they did. They'd studied up. They became familiar with what it means to worship the king of Israel. And then they also brought myrrh. We're not real sure uh, why or how, or even if they understood the significance of, of that burial ointment. But God moved on their hearts for that symbolism to be present uh, so that they could see the, we could see the cradle and just behind it, we can see the cross as well as we understand that he would die very soon, in just a few decades. Believers throughout the ages have been strangely moved regarding the incarnation. We sing every year, but I trust that having now heard this, and even last Sunday evening as we considered hymnology, that you can understand when the hymn writer wrote, Christ, by highest heaven adored Christ, the everlasting Lord. Why we sing that at Christmas or rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee. Or as Isaac Watts penned, joy to the earth, the savior reigns, let men 
their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. We need to do so as well. Or hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn king. Revelation 5.12 sums it up in recording the Lord Jesus receiving worship. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I close with this poem. Unknown author. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Bow down before him. His glory proclaim with gold of obedience and incense of lowliness. Kneel and adore him. The Lord is his name. Lord, I'm thankful for.